may be seated. When we bought our first house, there were, in the backyard, before we had gotten there, roses, climbing roses that, that kind of went up along a, a fence and, and in some other areas. And, and we're not the best when it comes to gardening. Um, you know, I mean, we, we like pretty things and all, but we're, we're, we're not the best. But, but Aaron's grandmother was incredibly talented when it came to, to that kind of thing. And so she called her grandmother and asked what we need to do with these roses because we could see right away that if we just kind of left them to their own, which would kind of be my preferred method of gardening, uh, that they would just kind of go off in every direction and would just be a big mess. And so we were told what we needed to do with the roses was kind of figure out the direction that we wanted them to go. And then we took little strips of nylon and, and kind of tied them together and tied them to the fence so that they would be pointed in the proper direction. They wouldn't go off in every wild direction, but would go in the way that they ought to go. What, what's that practice called? It's called training the roses. And indeed, we see in today's scripture reading that that's a really good picture for what we need to do with our children. Follow along now as I read from Proverbs 22, verses 1 through 6, remembering that this is the inspired word of God. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple Go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will be kept far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we can gather around it and we pray that now you would speak to us through the preaching of it. Be our direction today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to continue the gardening metaphor, uh, basically uh, when you go about the work of planting things. It, it seems to me that inevitably the hardest part is not so much the planting of something, but the clearing away of all the brush and all the weeds and all the other stuff that you don't want there. And then when the planting comes along, it, it's actually a pretty simple process. And, and if we were to look at this passage here today, and specifically I want to focus on this verse 6, where we retrain up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, we will not depart from it. I want to take a look at what that passage has for us, what it means for us. But I think a prudent place to start, much as with gardening, is not just diving into looking at what it does say, but to first kind of clear away some of the brush, to clear away some of the weeds, some of the misconceptions, and, and to say some of the things that this verse specifically is not doing 
and not saying. So first we'll look at what it's not saying and not doing, and then we'll take some time at the end of this sermon to say what it is telling us. But first of all, I I want to start here because I think it's very important. This verse, this verse that tells us that if we train up a child the way he should go, even when he's old, he will not depart from it, is not, let me repeat, is not a condemnation of those parents whose children are not walking with the Lord today. Let me tell you that first. And I want to tell you that first so that you don't just tune this out because I can see how it would be easy to tune everything out if that's what you thought I was saying. If perhaps you have a child who is not walking with the Lord or if, if you've known that experience, I think that we need to understand that that's not what this passage is trying to do. It is not trying to drive you to despair if your child is not walking with the Lord. Know that first of all. Secondly, it's not a license to provoke your children, if you will. That's not the goal here. We're not to, as parents, provoke our children. We we learned that, didn't we, when we went through Colossians just recently. In Colossians 3.21, we were told, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And there's many ways that we can provoke our children. We talked about a number of them then, but, but there's some other ways that we didn't talk about so much then that, that I want to touch on now that, that are means of provoking our children. One, one way that we do that, and I'm guilty of this sometimes myself, in the raising of my own children, one way that we do that is by having the it was better back then mentality all the time. You know, every third sentence we say to our children is, oh, back when I was a kid, it was so much better. You know, children did what they were told and they were supposed to. It was better back then. Everything was better. The, the world was better. America was better. Uh, the community was better. Everything was better back then. That's a good way to drive your children to despair, which is, of course, not the goal. We sometimes have this mindset. Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby talked about that some, about about his attitude with his father and 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 he kind of looked at it from the other end he said said sometimes his father talked about how it was so much harder back then you know and yeah he was was thankful you know he said that that his father walked to school four o'clock in the morning every day with no shoes on uphill both ways and five feet of snow and he was thankful We can do both of those things kind of paradoxically, can't we, as parents? We can, on the one hand, say, oh, it was so much better back then. And then at the same time, we say, oh, we had it so much harder back then. And in both ways, we can kind of provoke our children. We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful not to do either of those things, not to just live in the past. For what we're concerned about is our child's future. And so what they need is is not so much stories about how it used to be, Although there can be some use in those. I'm not saying never tell a story like that. But what they need especially is wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the word of God. And so we turn to the word of God with our children. We open it up with our children and we direct them. In Ephesians 6, we see kind of a parallel passage to that passage in Colossians that I just mentioned. It says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but it goes on a little bit further. Paul says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction 
of the Lord. That is the same thing that Solomon is saying here in this proverb. To bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Train up a child in the way he should go. As we come back to clearing away some of this brush, we need to remember that that this verse is not without context. My mom used to be a uh, realtor. She used to sell houses. And she told me, as I'm sure many of you have heard from other realtors, what are the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, and location. Bible study is much the same. What are the three most important things in Bible study? Context, context, context. We need to not just be ripping verses out of their context and and taking them for themselves and, and not understanding any of the surrounding passages, any of the larger uh, context, either uh, grammatical or as far as genre of literature or, or of the flow of what is happening both in that story directly or in the flow of redemptive history. We need to understand a passage within its context. We run into all kinds of problems if we fail to do this. The story goes that there was a man who... Uh, did his Bible studies by way of just just total lack of context. He would just open up his Bible, let it fall open, and, and look down. And, and one day he opened it up and did that and looked down, and his eyes fell upon the page, and he saw it was Matthew 27. And the first verse to catch his eye was verse 5, which reads, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. It's, of course, talking about Judas and how he, after betraying Christ, went out and hanged himself. And so this man flipped a couple pages over and looked down again and caught sight of Luke 10.37, where he read, You go and do likewise. Well, this is a terribly tragic way to study the Bible and to say, God has a word for me. Well, You see, it's to take those two verses completely out of context, right? To say that God meant this word for me today, when when in reality, that's not what's happening there. We need to understand the flow within the larger context, or else the results can be terrible and tragic. So if we look at the context here, we see, first of all, that this comes in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is uh, wisdom literature. It is meant to be such. It's not to be taken the exact same way as, as for instance, uh, the Ten Commandments, which are written to us as a didactic uh, direction to us. It says, do this, end of story. Now, the Proverbs instead kind of tell us the way that life is to be lived under the sun in God's creation, the way that, that he directs things. Things work out best if you live this way. And, and so he kind of holds out these two roads to us, a road of wisdom and a road of folly, and tells us time and time again to follow the way of wisdom. That is what Proverbs does. We need to understand that the words that we find on, in it are not necessarily ironclad promises. Now, don't be worried. Perhaps some of you hear me saying that and you say, what? What is Pete saying? He's saying we can't trust the Bible? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is we need to cooperate with any text when we read it. We need to cooperate with what it is trying to say to us. It's the same in English, just with our regular language. When we speak in Proverbs, we, we mean them to be understood 
as Proverbs. For instance, if I told you uh, that many hands make for light work, what I'm saying is that it's a good thing to have lots of people involved with work, right? And, and, and it makes things easier for us if we do that. And that's a, a true statement. Many hands make for light work. At the same time, we have another proverb, don't we? Too many cooks spoil the broth. What's that proverb saying? It's saying, well, if you get too many people involved, it messes up the work. It makes it harder. Well, wait, how can those both be true? But at the same time, don't we instinctively know that they both are true? They both are true, aren't they? There is a sense in which many people being involved in work makes it easier, but there is also a sense in which many people being involved makes it harder. And so we understand that Proverbs are calling us to use wisdom in every situation. The book of Proverbs has an example just like this. In Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, we find this said to us. First, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So the proverb here is saying to us, don't answer a fool according to his folly because if you do you're going to become like him and nobody wants to be a fool so that's what that verse says in verse 5 the very next verse we read this answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes so the very next verse tells us that we should answer a fool in his folly otherwise he's going to become wise in his own eyes now, now we have a problem here. These seem to contradict each other if we take them as ironclad statements that are to be followed all the time. But that's not how we're supposed to understand Proverbs. We understand Proverbs as wisdom. And we take it as wisdom to guide us and direct us. We're supposed to see it as a description of the way that things should normally work. We need to evangelize. That's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing. And frankly, it's a thing that we as a church have not done as well at as we ought to. But that's a sermon for another day. What God is telling us here is that the primary means by which he means to grow the church, both in his plans and as we look back throughout all of the history of the church, is not so much through evangelism of outsiders, although that is, again, a very good thing, something we need to be doing. But rather, it is a two-step method. Be fruitful and multiply, and train up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is the primary means by which we ought to grow the church, by which God desires to grow the church. And that is the main thrust behind this, as we understand it within context. And we understand the context it helps us to see that, that that is what it's directing us to. But we need to understand in clearing away the brush, it's also not just information transfer that's being talked about here. It's not just knowledge transfer. We, we're, we're not just about filling our children's heads with facts. We can do that sometimes. We can have them get to a point where they will for sure win every Bible trivia contest ever and yet not walk with the Lord. And if that's the case, then, then that has done them no good whatsoever. 
Charles Bridges puts it this way. He says, to expand without soundly enlightening the mind is but to increase its power for evil. Far better to consign it to total ignorance inasmuch as the uninstructed savage is less responsible, less dangerous than the well-furnished infidel. You see, we're, we're not just about filling our children's heads with facts and knowledge. We want to fill their hearts with love for our Savior. That's what we need to be seeking after. That's where we need to be working toward. That needs to be our goal. Now, ultimately, of course, it is God who works in their hearts by his spirit to bring about that love, but we need to be doing those things that will engender that. We need to be setting them up for success, if you will, as parents, so that they might be prepared to love Jesus more. It is also not in this passage, in clearing away one last piece of brush. It's not just about morality and ethics. It's not just a matter of teaching our children to do the right things. I think many of us uh, remember a day in the past 30 or 40 or 50 years ago when the community was much more of a Christian community. And perhaps it was. I'm not saying that it wasn't. But I think what a lot of us mean by that is that, well, people didn't, uh, you know, steal and they didn't uh, cuss and they didn't get drunk and they didn't, you know, all these behaviors. And certainly within the life of a Christian, those are the type of behaviors that ought not to be present. But ultimately, if that is all we're looking at, if we're just looking at behavioral modification in our children, then we are failing them as well. We need to be looking, again, to affect their heart that it might know Jesus and love Jesus. What our children need more than any of this brush that we have cleared away is the gospel. They need to know that they are sinners. They need to know that from their earliest days in the womb of their mother, They are already sinners. That they did not become sinners the first day they actively sinned, but rather they actively sinned on that first day because they were sinners from the beginning. Because they, like you and like me, fell in the garden when Adam sinned. And so each and every one of us has a sin nature that leaves us separated from God not just separated from him, longing to get back to him, but separated from him at enmity with him. As infidels, if you will, against God. Our children need to know that that was their standing. And that is how they would have remained if not for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh and lived for some 33 years, a perfect life, walking on two human feet, just like our feet, and living a human life just like our life, just like our life except that there was no sin found in him whatsoever. Holy in every way, every time faced with a challenge, every time faced with a trial, every time faced with a temptation, he, instead of giving in to those temptations, 
turned to his father instead. And he followed him faithfully. And that righteousness, that righteousness that he lived out for 33 years on earth, can be our righteousness if only we trust in him, if only we trust in the payment that he made on Calvary's cross, if only we know that he died for our sins and he rose that we might also have resurrection. What a wonderful truth that is. And that is a truth for you. It is a truth for me. And it is a truth for our children. We need to train them up in this truth. We need to teach them this. We need to model what it means to walk in light of this truth. We need to model that for them. That's as we turn our direction toward what we need to be doing. We need to live out, some say, live out the gospel. I I don't necessarily like that phrase of living out the gospel because the gospel is good news. It is a, a message about the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And you can't live that message. But what I think people mean when they say that, I firmly stand behind. And that is we need to live out its implications. We need to live out what would be true of somebody who has learned this truth. Who has learned that God has loved those who were his enemies. And he has saved those who were lost in sin. And we are those people. And so we should model in our lives to our children the type of things that would be living out that life. We should set household priorities that teach them the primacy of God. That means that our schedules as a household, both in the things that we do outside of the home and the things we do inside of the home, ought to point to the fact that that Jesus Christ is more important than athletic endeavors. Jesus Christ is more important than entertainment. Jesus Christ is more important than everything. He must be at the center of all we do as a family. He must be the focus of everything we do. We must set those examples for our children. Christianity must permeate all of our life, not just a couple hours on Sunday morning. It must be the hallmark of our existence. And then we need to bring our children to the Lord as members of the covenant community. They stand in a very special, special situation in that they are blessed to have parents who love the Lord and who know the Lord and who can teach them the Lord and bring them here as members of the covenant community, not as disturbances, not as second-class citizens, not as uh, necessary inconveniences while we get about the real business of worshiping, but rather as members of the church, members who Christ loves. I was asked just a couple weeks ago by somebody, what, what I thought about when I heard little children in worship maybe, maybe fussing or, or a little baby crying or fidgeting and noise that they were making. And, and I told the person, I said, I love it. Now all you children that are getting ready to talk when I said that, that's not my point. But what I meant was I love the fact that there are people who, who long to bring their children into the worship of the people of God. And, and we need to, with them, welcome those people and welcome their children into our midst so that they can 
be here and they can see God worship and they can be a part of it. There's a, a quote that I heard once from a gentleman named Scott Clark and he said, having children in church means that it will be slightly less entertaining and possibly less moving emotionally. It's a little harder to be enraptured by the latest chorus when your child is fidgeting next to you or someone else is, is wailing in your left ear. But that's okay. You might not have the same emotional high this week as you did when the children weren't there. But that's okay. Worship isn't about your experience or religious ecstasy. It's about hearing God and responding appropriately according to his word. And God doesn't mind that your emotional experience is less intense. He takes the long view. Your children will grow up not segregated from public worship in the means of grace. They'll grow up a part of the covenant community of the redeemed and watching baptisms so they can see what happened to them. They'll see the supper administered and they'll ask, when can I have it? They'll hear the law and the gospel and they'll grow up knowing that this is their identity, that it's really true. And God indeed said, I will be your God and your children's. God. And remember, it is Jesus himself who said in Matthew 18, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember the disciples who, who shortly after that, one chapter later in the Bible, the disciples see people bringing their children to Jesus and they, they try to prevent them And Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We need to bring our little children to church, not just so that they're in church, but that they might hear the gospel. And we need to proclaim the gospel to them. The gospel of Jesus died and risen again. The gospel of his atoning sacrifice for our sins the gospel of the resurrection that is ours in him. We need to teach them. Some enlightened people would tell you, well, you shouldn't really teach them and force that religion stuff on them. You should let them come to an age where they can decide on their own, right? And, and that's what enlightened people would tell us. What else do we do that with? Nothing. I don't say to my children, you know, there's this gravity thing, but you make up your mind on that, you know? While you're a kid, if you want to walk off the cliff, go ahead and walk off the cliff, you know, because you haven't decided on your own whether or not gravity is for you. That'd be ridiculous. It's farcical. See, it's a category confusion when we say we want to do that with our religious thoughts. Because what it's saying is, it's saying that, that there's this thought that there's no religion that's really true and you just kind of choose whatever you want. But see, that's the claim that Christianity is making That's the claim that the Bible is making, is that it is true. It's not that it works. It does work, but that's not the the central claim. The central claim is it's true. It's factual. There was a man who was the son of God, and he lived in history just as truly as you and I do. And he died for your sins and for mine. And he rose on the third day. And that is truth. Every bit as much as if I drop a coin, it will fall to the floor.
It is truth, and so we need to teach it as truth. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he he lauds how from childhood he had been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let us acquaint our children with the sacred writings which are able to make them wise for salvation through Christ Jesus as well. And let us pray for them. Let us pray for our children. Let us pray for them even before they are born. Let us pray for them. And as they are babies, even even little infants, let us pray for our children that they might know Christ Jesus. And let us pray throughout their whole lives. Let us pray that our children would never remember a day when they did not call on Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let us pray for our children as they grow older. If they have not yet turned to the Lord, let us pray that they would. Let us pray that he would move their heart in such a way that it would no longer be a heart of stone, but would be a heart of flesh. Let us pray that he would give blind eyes sight and deaf ears hearing, that they might know the gospel to be true for themselves and that they might turn in repentance and in faith. And let us trust God. Ultimately, that's what we need to do. We need to trust God. He is worthy of our trust. We sometimes sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever will be. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. We can depend on God. This is a pattern that was set long ago throughout all the scriptures. He speaks about how he will be faithful to his people and to not only his people, but to their children as well. That is how he longs to work through generations. That is how he most commonly works. Think back even to the earliest pages of scripture in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have fallen in sin. And what are those first words of gospel truth that God issues forth in his curse upon the serpent? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even there, God's plan is to work through generational means. Through the offspring of the woman, the serpent would be crushed. And indeed he was on Calvary's cross We can rejoice in that fact. We can rejoice in the fact that God, who has begun a good work in us and in our families, will be faithful to bring it to completion. If we build on this foundation of God's faithfulness and the promises that he has for us and the word of Christ Jesus, then we can view the salvation of our children from the perspective not of anxiety, but of faith. And so let us trust in God. There are two roads that lie ahead of our children the way that they should go and the way that they would go let us do everything we can knowing that God ultimately holds their future in his hands let us do everything we can to assure that they would follow the road that they should follow They're already members of the covenant community. They are already experiencing many benefits of that. 
One of those is that they are present even here right now in our midst, hearing about Christ Jesus, brought up in a family that loves them. But even as much as we love them, the Lord loves them even more. And so let us then train up our children in the way that they should go. The way that leads to faithfulness. The way that leads to holiness. The way that leads to the love of Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that indeed that would be the case. That this would be a congregation that Waterbrook would be a school, that the church at large would be such that our children would grow up knowing you as their Savior, that there would be generational blessings as we see children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren sharing in the faith of those who have come before them, May that be the case here. May it be the case throughout your church. And may you use us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.